This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Michael Palmer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for the invitation. I have been waiting a long time to talk to you. And uh, this this particular talking point, I think, is probably over the target, isn't it? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> we'll find <laughs> out, I guess. <laughs> how, how is the information war treating you? The information war? Um, well, these days I spend most of my time on not on this topic, but on COVID. I would actually like to return to something more interesting because COVID is really a doozy of junk science, but okay. <laughs> so, and in this uh, COVID war, I make, I guess, similar experiences as many other people do. Um, things only ever get published in the alternate media. The mainstream media are more or less closed with a little bit of cracks appearing now here and there. There have been some encouraging signs, for example, in Germany, my home country. There was recently a uh, TV episode of at least 15 minutes or something in which a pathologist got some hard-hitting messages across about um, COVID vaccine damage, which he could prove in a very direct way in um, autopsies, for example. So there are some cracks in the mainstream media, but most of the truthful and uh, deep information you really only find on alternate media, as you know, of course, yeah, mm. you have seen that. What is your background? My background? Um, so as you might guess from my accent, as I already gave away, I'm from Germany. I'm a medical doctor by training. And um, after training as an MD in Germany, I spent 10 years working with Sucharit Bhakti in the Department of Medical Microbiology in Mainz, and I got my own advanced degree, actually two advanced degrees in that field at the time, but most of the time actually was spent on doing some research of a broadly biochemical, biophysical nature. Then in 2001, I took up a position in the uh, Department of Chemistry at the University of Waterloo here in Canada, where I still live. And for 20 years, I um, taught and did research in biochemistry there. And in March this year, I got kicked out, even though I was tenured there, for refusing the COVID vaccines. So there, since then, I have been prematurely retired. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said you worked with Sukharit Bhakti. Uh, he was one of my very first COVID-related guests ever. Okay, yes. Well, I mean, he's a brilliant man. And as we now find out, he's also a very courageous man. I always do mm. to be brilliant and full of integrity. But I never had the opportunity to observe how brave he actually is in putting all his reputation on the line and this sort of thing in order to bring truth to the people. So I'm very um, I'm very happy to, to see this. And I'm actually again working with him together in this group, Doctors for COVID Ethics. You may have seen one or the other video from the symposiums we have done, just recently another one. And we work again very well together, which is very, which um, 
set, which makes me very happy. Is what I know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki probably false? Uh, it's not probably false. It is absolutely it is false with complete certainty. At least I'm completely convinced of it because there's very, very strong, unambiguous scientific evidence that proves it to be wrong. And I hope to make that case uh, in the presentation I have prepared for you. So we might as well get started on that if you like. Right, great. Thank you very much. Yes, so this is what I'm going to try to tell you, the truth about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the questions are listed here. So the key question, the first one is, were atomic bombs exploded or not? And I will try to make the case that they were not. And the question then is, if not atomic bombs, what else? And we will look at both physical evidence and medical evidence and also consider some witness testimony in order to better understand what really happened on those two days. Okay. We also will delve briefly into the uh, history, but I have not prepared much on that. I guess this is something that we might uh, elucidate in discussion because it's not as clear from the evidence. One must actually speculate a bit here. Okay, so um, I have written a book on it, which you can find on archive.org, Hiroshima Revisited. And so I don't need to uh, give any longer links. You can find it there easily. You can also buy a print book. And this book in particular contains all the references for the evidences, evidence I will show you. So if you find what I am going to show you too unlikely to be true, you can find out exactly where this information came from. Okay, so um, you may have seen this. If you have at all been interested in this question, you may have seen this bit of witness testimony, which is quite widely found on the web. Um, interestingly, the book in which it was written down is not listed among this gentleman's uh, works on Wikipedia. Several other of his books are listed, but this one is conspicuous by his absence. And he was an engineer. He was also a Russian fighter pilot from World War I, but he became an aeronautical engineer leading one in the United States. And he was sent on, a, on an exploration tour by the Secretary of the Defense of the US after this World War II, shortly after, and he actually toured the destroyed cities in Germany and also in Japan. And now once he, right after he had seen a bunch of cities destroyed with conventional means, he says that Hiroshima looked exactly the same. And once he was on the ground, he also found no, none of the uh, signs of the atomic bomb that he had been given to understand would be found there. For example, this bald spot just wasn't there, right? Near the center of the explosion, there was no complete destruction. I mean, all the wooden houses that had been standing there, they had been burned to the ground. But on the other hand, the steel concrete construction was still in evidence. Those houses were still standing there. Okay, so you can notice from this one, there are no particular signs, no special signs of destruction that we would have to explain in Hiroshima. Okay, we can explain it all like Seversky told us, we can explain it with conventional destruction. Then, okay, so a key piece of evidence that is usually trotted out in order to prove that atomic bombs have been exploded is the fallout. Okay, but if we look at fallout in samples that were collected only three days after the bombing, 
then we see that there's only a tiny amount of uh, fission product, right? Cesium-137 is a radioactive isotope, which is formed by the breaking apart of a uranium nucleus. And the more uranium is fissioned, the more cesium you should expect on the ground, okay? There's only a tiny amount. The radioactivity of this peak, right, is this little blip here on the black curve. And on the other hand, you see several higher black peaks, which are all due to natural radioactivity. And in particular, the highest one is potassium-40, okay? These samples um, were measured in 1996. So between 1945 and 1996, um, about two-thirds of that cesium would have already decayed, right? So in 1945, had the same measurement been carried out in 1945, the cesium peak would have been some three times higher but it would still have been small relative to natural background. So that shows us even immediately after the bombing, before the fallout could have been washed away by rain or blown away by the wind, there was really only a minuscule amount of radioactivity on the ground. Okay, good. So that's one uh, oddity. Now, here we have another bit of uh, fallout measurement. What we see here is a plasterboard from a house in uh, Hiroshima whose roof had been blown away in the attack. And then uh, half an hour or so after the bombing had begun, um, this so-called black rain dropped onto the ground. Okay, And you see the uh, black raindrops, which soiled this plasterboard. Okay, So these, right, the fallout is said to have been carried mostly by this black rain. So we should expect a lot of radioactivity in these traces. But it turns out if these are carefully examined, right, the highest amount of uh, bomb uranium that can be inferred from these measurements, right, this, this results from the isotope mixture, right? So there are two major isotopes of uranium. Natural uranium consists to more than 99% of uranium-238, which is not uh, useful for bombs. And the minor isotope, uranium-235, consists, uh, form, this accounts for only 0.7%, okay? Now for, a build, for building a proper uranium bomb, this minor isotope would have to be concentrated to about 80%. So very high degree of concentration would be necessary. So from the observed mixture of the two isotopes in these samples, you can actually work out how much of the observed uranium is from the bomb, could be from the bomb, and how much must be ascribed to natural background. And it turns out the highest value of bomb uranium that you can deduce from any of these measurements is this one, 0.2%. 0.2%, even in these samples of blackout of black rain, which is supposed to have carried the fallout of the bomb on the day of the bombing, there's only a minuscule amount of bomb uranium that you could infer from it. Still, these data, these papers, right, they never question the official story. They always present data such as this as evidence of the bombing, which is absurd, you know, but it's, this is the way it's interpreted. Okay, let's look at Nagasaki. Nagasaki, that was supposed to have been a plutonium bomb, and one indeed can find some fallout, which is a mixture of plutonium, and also cesium, which again is a major fission product, right? And with both uranium and plutonium, nuclear fission will produce some cesium, radioactive cesium. 
And um, strangely enough, most of the plutonium is found some three kilometers from the hippocenter. The hippocenter of a nuclear explosion is the point straight under the bomb, right? So the bomb is supposed to have gone off high in the air at some 500, 600 meters. And the point straight beneath it, that is the hippocenter. And the distance between the hippocenter and this um, radioactively contaminated reservoir is about three kilometers. So that is um, odd, right? You would expect uh, normally Michael? more fallout near the hippocenter. Yes. Sorry for interrupting. What would be the more. reason for them exploding the bomb so high up? Um, the, po the point is the explosive effect, right? Will cover a larger area, right? If you explode it on the ground, then you have a higher um, degree of destruction, probably right on the side. But I think the pressure wave won't be spreading as readily because it is blocked by buildings and this other thing. Okay, so I understand. I to destroy a larger, to a larger, uh, larger area in one blow. Okay, so this reservoir. Now, a very interesting study was carried out some um, in 2008. Was this, this paper was published in 2008. Now, a Japanese group, they actually drilled a core out of the sediments of this reservoir, sliced it up, and looked which slices contained how much radioactivity. Okay, so we see here on the x-axis the sediment depth. So we see that the radioactivity, both plutonium in red and cesium in blue, are found at about 440 centimeters or 435 centimeters beneath the ground of the uh, reservoir at the time in 2008. Now, what they also found was a layer that contained charcoal, right? Just soot from the burning city. And we see that the soot from the burning city is found some 15 centimeters lower than the radioactivity. Okay. Now, um, if we assume that the rate of sedimentation, right, the amount of sediment formed per year was more or less constant over time, then this difference in sediment depths would indicate that the radioactivity was dispersed, was um, distributed into this reservoir only some two years after the bombing. Okay, now this is interesting because we can compare it to the statements of Arthur Compton, physics novelist and uh, director of the Manhattan projects, right? The atomic bomb projects um, effort to produce nuclear fuels for reactors and for bombs. He gave a presentation on May 31st, 1945, before a secret committee in Washington. And at this meeting, he stated that they had not succeeded in purifying plutonium. They had only succeeded at the point, at that point, in um, converting some, in just simply letting some reactor fuel go critical inside the reactor and producing a nuclide mixture radioactive waste in principle that contained a little bit of plutonium, but they had not managed to extract any significant quantity from it. Okay, so and he estimated it would take two years until they would be ready to purify it and another year in order to obtain it in quantity, probably that refers to enough of it for building bombs. Okay, so two years after this meeting, he says, we would be ready to have plutonium. Now we go back to this previous slide 
And we see that indeed two years after the bombing, plutonium shows up in the reservoir. So Compton was right. It would take about two more years before they would actually be able to purify plutonium. Now, the first plutonium bomb is supposed to have been detonated in July 1945 in New Mexico. And the second one is supposed to have been detonated in Nagasaki. Here you have it from the horse's mouth that this cannot be true, that this story cannot be true. This was actually contained, this information was contained in an originally top secret classified memo, which at some point was declassified and was accessible at the National Security Archive in Washington. And it actually has been taken down lately, just a few months ago. Wayback Machine still finds it, but now this document has been memory hold, at least at the National Security <laughs> Archive. Okay, And one statement is really explicit, right? Even if some of my, um, my inferences from it require a bit of technical background in order to make plausible, there is this one statement that it would take them three years overall to obtain plutonium in quantity is written down as such explicit in that report. There is no arguing with it. So they could not possibly have built plutonium bombs sooner than two or three years after the, um, after the uh, conference here in 1945. Okay, so the summary. Um, I think I'm not going to read it all again because we have just gone through it, but just the alternate interpretation, right? If we look in more detail, which I'm not going to go into right now, it's all in the book, if we look in detail at the mixture of isotopes in the fallout at Hiroshima, it is perfectly consistent with weakly enriched reactor material, right? To, I told you earlier that natural uranium only contains 0.7% of the fissile uranium-235 isotope. This has to be enriched to a somewhat higher degree, right? The industrial, modern industrial reactors use about 3% enrichment. And then you can use it in the reactor as fuel. And for a bomb, you actually would have to enrich it to something like 80%, right? The degree of enrichment in the uranium bomb at Hiroshima is said to have been 80%. It is not true. So the isotope mixture clearly points to only weakly enriched reactor material and uh, is clearly inconsistent with bomb uranium. Then with Nagasaki, we just went through it, right? There was no plutonium and that which is found was only dispersed two years later. And what we can conclude is that neither uranium nor plutonium were available in 1945 in bomb grade quantities and purities. And that in both cities, the Americans tried to fake fallout of bombs, right? If you look at this fallout in detail, it tells you there were no bombs. But if you look at it superficially, then you say, oh, radioactivity, so there must have been a bomb. But if you really analyze it in detail, in both cities, it doesn't add up. Okay, so now there are other studies which were conducted in the um, decades after the war supposed to prove that the bombs had been gone off. Okay, so how was this done? A nuclear bomb is supposed to release both gamma radiation and neutron radiation. Okay, the gamma radiation can be captured by bricks and roof tiles 
right? Some of the energy can be stored there and you can elicit this energy in the form of light if you heat them up. If you heat these materials up, then you can elicit this energy as light and the more light you get, the more gamma rays should have been there in order to create the stored energy. Okay, so that is one method. The other method for measuring neutrons um, is based on the capture of neutrons. So the neutrons coming from the bomb hit some atomic nuclei on the ground. The nuclei capture those neutrons and change because of this additional neutron and they become radioactive. Okay, and the more neutrons reach the ground, the more radioactivity will be induced in this manner. You can measure those isotopes that would have been produced, would have been induced in this manner. Okay, so let's look at some data from Hiroshima. Okay, now a little bit more background is needed here. Okay, so if we find a roof tile from Hiroshima and we want to examine how much uh, gamma radiation must have been present at the time, then the first thing we do is simply to heat it up, right? The first activity is we grind it down to a powder and then we heat it up, we heat up this powder, right? And then we measure at each temperature, we measure how much light this powder gives off. This is an uncalibrated signal, right? So in this initial measurement, we get rid of all the pent up energy and we simply make a note of how much light was observed. Then we need to calibrate it. We need to actually find out how much radiation would have uh, caused this much light with this particular sample, right? So different variants, different types of ceramic may be differently good at capturing this energy. So we need to have the conversion factor, the proportionality factor, the calibration factor that tells us how much light means how much original gamma radiation. Now, if you look at this original paper here, what we see here is that the calibration factors, which are a material, a property of the material of the sample, they behave very unusually. They are the highest near the hippocenter, and then they fall off, right? The further we get away from the hippocenter, the more they fall off. On the other hand, the raw luminescence, the signal which was measured in the initial heating run is flat. Okay, so there's no change. It's very low and it is flat. Okay, so now we can then ask how likely is it that the calibration factor would just by chance turn out to show the sequence? Because it's really, what in reality, the red curve should just simply go zigzag all over the place. There should be no regular relationship to the distance from the hippocenter. So the question is, how likely is it that we simply by chance observe this sequence? And it turns out this likelihood is 0.02%. And in Nagasaki, it's a similar story. So in both cities, we actually get these nonsense values. What I do believe is, right, I mean, these people who did this fakery, they were not stupid. I think they wanted to tell us something. They were forced to do this kind of crap, and they wanted to insert a little time capsule, a little drift bottle into their data. They just faked it in a way that is very improbable. So again, if you look at these data closely, you can see the fakery. If you don't, if you're not convinced by that, just consider this, right? So the, um, in the bombing, right? The activation of these ceramic materials, of these tiles and bricks would have happened first. This is the atomic flash. See, as soon as the bomb goes off, this radiation is released and would have to be captured by these bricks. Now, 
Um, from then on, the bricks would actually have to be kept cool or at least at ambient temperature in order to not lose this energy. Now, the problem is that the entire city and both cities actually burned more or less to the ground. And you here see some three buildings from two cities. This one, the top left, is a building in Nagasaki. The other two are from Hiroshima, right? They are totally burned out. So if you collect some bricks or tiles from these buildings, they already would have been heated in the fire that followed the bombing. And this would have released any stored thermoluminescence energy. In the bottom right, you see a roof tile from a building um, as it would have been used in, uh, in these measurements. And you see that the surface is completely etched by the fire. Okay, so this, this is absurd, right? And this entire problem is not even discussed in the paper, which I showed you the data from. So it's, it's, it's a clear bit of fakery. Okay, so the, um, the uh, thermoluminescence data are fake. Now the neutron data are fake as well. Okay, this can be seen simply from this table. Okay, so a little bit more background again, right? So the neutrons which come from the bomb and hit the ground, they will have different uh, amounts of energy left over as they hit the ground. Okay, the neutrons with the lowest energy are the thermal neutrons and the epithermal ones, they have somewhat higher energy. Now you can actually carry out some uh, analysis by comparing different isotopes and I'm not going to go into all these details. Uh, suffice it to say that we can work out for individual samples how, uh, what fraction of the neutrons would have had low energy and what fraction would have had higher energy. And obviously this distribution should be the same in all each case because they were exposed to the same bomb. Right, so whatever, whatever the energy distribution of that bomb would have been, it would have been the same. It should be reflected. It should give the same results in all the samples on the ground, at least if analyzed using the same assumptions. They should all the numbers in each of them should be the same. And a particularly funny example is the first one. You can actually also work out if you really look closely at it. You can work out that this sample was most likely exposed to neutrons not in 1945, but in 1948 or something like that. Okay, <laughs> by comparing the measurements from individual isotopes, you can work it out that this sample must have been exposed several years after the war. So it's this is a clear bit of fakery. So what all this amounts to is there is essentially no fallout. A little bit of fallout that there was is uh, from reactor waste and none of the subsequent measurements on neutron and gamma radiation actually stand up to scrutiny. So That's Michael, yeah. can Go I ahead. jump in? Sorry, I, I apologize, yes. uh, but no worry. you're talking about the fallout. Now, obviously you can make a comparison, a real world comparison between Hiroshima and say Chernobyl, right? Uh. Yeah, well, I mean, Chernobyl had much, much more fallout. It's just, it, it's incomparably more. I mean, it, as mm. it should be, because in uh, there is a lot more fuel inside a large reactor that blows up than inside a, a bomb, right? I mean, in one key point is indeed, which I didn't really mention, but the, the bomb in, in Hiroshima is supposed to have contained 50 kilograms of enriched uranium, and of that, only one kilogram is supposed to actually have fission. Okay, so the other 49 kilogram should have been dispersed with the fallout. And yet, you see right in this one uh, plaster 
uh, board which I showed you is only a minuscule, the tiniest amount, just barely measurable, is there. Okay, so it's it's a clear a clear disconnect, a clear discrepancy. So the physical evidence clearly tells us there were no bombs. So the question then is, what happened in reality? For example, in particular, where did the radiation sickness come from? There are numerous reports of people who looked like these. These are both pictures from Hiroshima. The young man on the left, he shows these bloody spots, and this is because his bone marrow had failed, and it was no longer putting out any blood platelets, and if you suffer a loss of blood platelets, then you have these spontaneous bleedings, okay? And this is actually, this young man actually succumbed uh, shortly after. Also, hair loss, as we see with the child on the right-hand side, also, right, many tissues are quite susceptible to radiation, bone marrow is one, the hair follicles are another, the uh, um, mucous membranes of the small intestine are yet another and so on. So we have multiple reports of this type of disease in both cities. So how, how did this come about? Okay. Now, um, before, we, before we try to understand what really happened, we can first check whether the reports which we do have of this radiation sickness, whether they are actually lining up with the story of the bombs, okay? So we can first consider um, how strong would the radiation have been? How much radiation dose would a person exposed in the open have received at what distance from the hypocenter, right? From the point directly below the bomb. And there we see a very characteristic shape, right? We see that um, a person exposed in the open would have received a lethal dose of radiation up to about 1,000 meters away from the hippocenter. Okay, within 500 meters, the dose would have been astronomical, as you can see. Right, it's a multitude, multiple of the of the uh, lethal dose, but it would have been lethal at least to 1,000 meters out. And on the other hand, because the radiation dose then really strongly declines with distance beyond 2,000 meters, you really shouldn't see any radiation sickness anymore, okay? And somewhat variable results would be expected between 1,000 and 2,000 meters, right? This is what we should expect. Now, another point to note is that this right? Even according to the official story of the bomb, um, the amount of radiation that is due to induced radiation or fallout on the ground should be too small, too little, in order to induce acute radiation signal, uh, sickness. In the long term, in answer and so on, that's a different story. But the acute uh, radiation sickness is caused only by a really high dose of radiation, okay? And only then this, uh, uh, radioactivity on the ground could not account for acute radiation sickness. So that's important. So now on to some data. These were actually, these data were collected on day 20 after the bombings by Japanese physicians. Okay, at the time there were almost no, I mean, at this time the capitulations would already have occurred, right? The Japanese capitulation would already have occurred, but the Americans really only sent physicians in numbers to Hiroshima and Nagasaki in October. So until then, the Japanese were more or less left to their own devices. So they collected these data. 
what they find is, right, the uh, group, the survivors, which they were then looking after, um, according to distance from the hippocenter at which they were, had been exposed. Okay, and we see that in the first group, um, all of the then still um, um, so present survivors, which were then uh, being um, um, which were then still being treated by the Japanese physicians and uh, kept tabs off, um, they should all have died, but they didn't, right? So after several months, even several months later, only 22 of those 105 had died. At that point, they should all have been dead. And then we see that on the other hand, um, at much greater distances from the hippocenter, right, we still see cases of acute radiation sickness and there should have been none, right? So all of these, right, 2.1 and 2.5, they would have been on the right-hand side of this graph with doses that simply would not have been anywhere near enough to induce acute radiation sickness. And we, okay, so I think that's enough about this one. Um, so this, this distribution does not fit. And then um, we also see some very strange um, reports about miraculous survival, right? An early paper which I found, I found generally this might may actually be of value. Generally, um, I found generally that the very early papers are the more telling ones. These apparently were written before a comprehensive cover story had been devised. There were no; these people did not have the script, so to speak, which they had to follow. The script was still being worked out, and in that time window between the acute events and the uh, publishing of the script that which they would have to follow that would have to follow in the future they actually wrote some truth and here we have one american physician who was at the time in osaka and was looking after a couple of japanese patients and one of the patients told him that he had been practically at the center of the explosion practically at the hippocenter right i mean he should have been dead immediately should have been dead immediately due to the explosion and then if somehow miraculously he, he survives the explosion, he should have been killed by the radiation within days. He was still alive weeks later. Okay, and then some of these survivors were still encountered in the 1950s and 1960s, when the Americans finally got around to trying to determine how much radiation each survivor had uh, received. Okay, so they had in the meantime carried out some model experiments in the context of atomic bomb tests. It had worked out at what distance uh, is the intensity of neutrons and of gamma rays is uh, at what level and so on. And now in order to determine for the individuals, they would interview those individuals and ask them, where, where were you on that day? How far from the hippocenter have you been? Were they inside, outside and so on and so forth? And on that occasion, they still encountered these survivors and these who told them, okay, I was near the hippocenter, I didn't hear an explosion and I survived. What the Americans did is, okay, yes, these people must be amnesic. And so simply, we just simply discard the entire recollections. They simply suppressed the testimony. They simply discarded the testimony. Okay. <laughs> then here we have uh, Colonel Ashley Otterson. Otterson. Um, he was the American lead on the joint commission. This was a committee, an American-Japanese uh, commission of physicians who went into both Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
and to actually compile the data which I showed you earlier, right? So this data had initially been collected by Japanese, but the Americans, so this, this uh, binational committee, this joint commission um, acquired these data and worked them up statistically and published them, okay? And the American lead on this committee was this uh, Colonel Autism. And he wrote this statement, it is difficult to explain the complete absence of radiation effects in a number of people who were theoretically exposed to lethal doses of radiation. It's of course not merely difficult, it is impossible, right? <laughs> if you receive a lethal dose of radiation, you're not going to survive, period. But this is his diplomatic way of saying it. And this was apparently enough for this person to suffer a plane crash the same year when this report was published. And the later report by another member mentions that three of the other six MDs also met an untimely death. And I have not been able to ascertain exactly how these people died, right? But I mean, you have to wonder, right? I mean, these were all MDs who would serve on this joint commission and they should have noticed that something didn't add up, okay? So maybe the untimely deaths have something to do with that realization, but this is speculation on my part, I cannot prove it, but it is certainly a strange circumstance. But what you're, what you're suggesting, Michael, yeah. is that they, yes. already, they already had a strong idea that, that this was not atomic. Yes, that's what I think. I mean, they, mm. this is not the only odd observation they would have been making. I mean, these people were not stupid. I mean, this was, mm. he was a... Uh, he was a surgeon from Yale, and he was a, he was a very clearly very smart man. So, okay, now another observation, right? I told you earlier that the uh, radiation is enough radiation to induce acute radiation sickness. Is uh, did only occur um, during the explosion itself. Now there are actually numerous reports, and here is actually one statistic um, of people who had been outside the city, outside the city on the day of the bombing, and then they came to the city and helped with the cleanup efforts, okay? And then they suffered acute radiation sickness. And there were even some fatalities, right? People died of this radiation sickness, even though they hadn't been anywhere near the explosion. So that's another observation that doesn't fit. So um, I don't think I need to repeat myself here in the interest of time. I will just skip it and will dive into the question, if radiation sickness was not caused by radiation, then what did cause it? And the first clue I found was actually in a paper by a Japanese historian who quoted Masao Suzuki. He was a, the, a Japanese lead on this joint commission, okay? So he had heard reports of gas. Okay, and that this gas was actually causing people to, to suffer pain and uh, other respiratory complaints. Okay, and then it turns out if you go through some eyewitness testimony, and here we have two examples from a collection of uh, eyewitness testimony from school children, right? There are some 110 or so um, reports overall, and 13 of these children mention ex uh, explicitly poison gas. Okay, and strikingly, each of them says, right, the poison gas came from the atom bomb. The atom bomb caused poison gas. This is probably a propaganda story, a cover story they were told. Okay, there are even this, even I found one bit of um, um, 
writing from Japanese medical doctors that suggests the same. So they also were given this story. There was atom bomb gas floating around. Now, Wilfred Burchett, he was an Australian journalist and he managed to steal into Hiroshima when it was strictly of limits for civilians. And he reports his um, experiences here and he particularly notices a uh, stench, a sulfuric stench. Now, what does this suggest? It suggests the presence of this compound, mustard gas, also called sulfur mustard, which is the so-called king of battle gases used in World War I. And um, its effect on the bone marrow and other sensitive tissues are the same, are very similar to radiation, okay? But on top of that, and this is something that radiation does not do, it causes acute lung damage, at least if you inhale it. And if you don't have a gas mask, you are going to inhale it. And it also causes blistering and uh, uh, blistering of the skin, right? Okay, and it causes some other nastiness, for example, capillary leak syndrome. And here we have a gentleman not exposed to atomic bomb, but this is what capillary leak syndrome looks like. Okay, so you swell up the. What really happens is, as the name suggests, your blood vessels become leaky, and the, the fluid volume seeps out from the blood vessels into the tissues. So the tissues swell up, and because you lose all this blood volume, become ex you become extremely thirsty. And there are many eyewitness reports that really uh, talk of um, the victims having gathered around puddles and just simply, or rivers, little creeks, and just simply drank the water, they just drank the water from, from these uh, sources. And um, other symptoms, which I'm not going to go into much detail about, but you can read about them in the book. So there are quite a few symptoms which are explained with mustard gas, which are not explained with radiation. Okay, and here we have um, a little bit of pathology. This is actually very rare, okay? It's also interesting to note, right? So um, this joint commission, they grabbed all autopsy materials from both cities, took them away from the Japanese who had actually um, acquired them, had performed these autopsies, and just took them away to America. And while they were in America, there was only very, very little reporting going on. This is one of the very uh, few pieces of data which actually tells us something about what was really going on. So what we have here is, in the middle you see this big white spot, right? So this is an inflated uh, lung alveolus, and then this inflation of one alveolus uh, compresses the others, right? So this uh, picture of inflated and deflated uh, alveoli that uh, indicates that the bronchi are obstructed. And this is indeed typical right, of mustard gas also. You can't really compare it in the literature. It's the same, it's the same pattern. Okay, now what's these nuclear flash burns, right? We are told that people that suffered burns in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that they were burned by the flash from the atomic bomb. So what you see here is two um, victims of napalm burns, burns and one victim of nuclear flash burn. Which one, Jeremy? Which one shall it be? Which is the real deal? Which is the real atomic burn? And which is the napalm burn? Yo, I don't, I don't, I don't know which one. Um, the the point is, they look all the same, right? They look all the same because they are simply all napalm burns. If you are exposed to a strong flash of light, it should burn the entire exposed surface, right? There is no way that any such flash could cause this arbitrarily circumscribed local strong burn 
without damaging the remainder of the skin. Okay, so this is what it was. It was an upper burn. And um, here we have a diary entry from, uh, this is a very, read, very uh, important book by, written by a Hiroshima physician. He actually does buy the story of the atomic bomb, but you can actually, from his diary, glean lots of evidence to the opposite, to actually prove the opposite. What he describes here is, right, he was encountering on the day of the bombings people who looked apparently exactly like this famous Napalm girl. Okay, this is what it was. And um, here we have um, some more, right? This is, this is actually, this little boy is the uh, cousin of Napalm girl, and he has more severe burns and he died the same day. And you see the skin coming off, peeling off, and this is the same thing that um, that this physician also observed, right? Now, why are these people nude, right? How did this come about? The napalm was simply uh, spraying around. It was sticking to the clothes. So they simply rip off the clothes as fast as possible in order to no longer suffer the, the burn effects, right? This is how, how they lose their clothes. In part, they might simply burn off as such, but uh, as long as you are still able to, you will try to get rid of the clothes as fast as you can in order to get rid of the napalm, which is sticking to them. Yeah, this is a, that's a famous photo. Yes, it is. Yes, it's a famous mm. photo, and it matches. It totally matches the description of this uh, of these supposed atomic bomb victims. That's the point. Um, so then, a flash burn, a nuclear flash, should produce burns to the eye ground, to the retina. Okay, and this has indeed been observed in later bomb tests both with rabbits, and it has been observed also in American soldiers who looked accidentally at these fireballs. And here you see one example, right? You see this volcano-like crater in the eye ground, which is the site at which the, right, this was the image of the, of the flash, and the light was so strong as to see and burn the retina, okay? Now, how many such cases of retinal burns do we have from Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Jeremy again. It's... <laughs> Zero. There's zero. There is not one report. There is not a single report. Not one. Of, not one. Not, not one. There's not one. There's not one. Not a single one. I've, I've looked um, up and down and left and right. There is not a single one. So, um, good. Then on the top. So, I just told you we have napalm burns. Okay. Now, napalm burns will be manifest immediately, but we also have delayed burns. Okay. And these, in turn, they. Um, suggest that we have mustard gas effects, right? So we have mustard gas effects manifest as this pseudo-radiation, acute radiation sickness, but we also have the delayed effect on the skin, which is also, this is typical of mustard gas. And mustard gas also, I think I didn't mention this yet, but it is, uh, it's, it sticks around. So once it drops to the ground, it has a very high boiling point, 157 degrees, so it just evaporates very slowly over time and simply the contamination of the hippocenter and the slow, re slow release of the mustard gas perfectly explains why people who came to the hippocenter after the bombing were still affected by it. So it all adds up, it's just simply, uh, okay. So now we leave the medical stuff behind, at least for now, I think, I think actually for good. And now we have, we look at these atomic shadows. Okay, so what we are supposed to look, be looking at here on the left-hand side is a bridge and these white pale shadows cast by the um, posts. 
are supposed to have been produced by the nuclear flash. Okay. Now, this bridge, this particular bridge, is within one kilometer of the hippocenter. And I just don't think that Seversky would not have, would not have uh, stumbled on it, but would have been told about it when he was trying to find just such special signs. So in the beginning of November, they were not there. Lebo, which is the pathologist, uh, one pathologist who was a member of the, of the uh, Joint Commission, arrived in October and he saw all these shadows and he makes actually a big show of it. So he just, all his guests get, get the spiel, right? They are just taken from one place to another and are shown all these, these famous signs. Now, um, since we know the location of the bridge relative to the hippocenter and we know the altitude of the hippocenter, indeed, it is claimed that one piece of evidence that uh, caused the hippocenter to be located in the place uh, it originally was, was the, were these shadows, right? So you can take, uh, it can draw a line through the tip of the shadow and to the tip of the post, and then the source of the flash must have been somewhere along this line. If you do this uh, in multiple spots in the city, then the intersection of all those lines should uh, locate the, the epicenter, right? The place of the detonation in the air. Now, if we take this, if we turn this around and ask, if we put a light source in this very place and look what the shadows should look like, then we see that it doesn't add up. This is what I have done here on the right-hand side. This is a simulated scene with the same bridge in the same location and with the uh, light source in the place of the uh, supposed epicenter of the bomb. And you see that the simulated shadows are longer by half or so than the ones that are painted originally on the bridge. So it's another piece of evidence that just doesn't add up with the official story. Okay, so um, now, how was it actually done? Um, that is a little bit more subject to speculation. What is striking is that the um, eyewitness testimony has only very, very few reports of explosions on the ground. There are some, but certainly nothing that is in any way proportional to the damage that we see. So what I believe is that the uh, bombs were mostly detonated already in the air. The napalm was, this, was, um, was um, detonated in the air, right? And then the burning gobs of napalm, they just simply rained down on the city. And there's actually quite a bit of witness testimony which supports that picture. Right? People who describe having seen burning, red, really fire falling from the sky, right? So this adds up with this uh, sort of testimony. I think that the um, mustard gas was probably delivered in the same way. And then there were some elaborate fireworks with colored smoke bombs and so on. If you really look at the witness testimony at the description of the cloud, the cloud looks like elaborate fireworks, right? I mean, a nuclear detonation should produce one big blinding flash that should be the end of it. But they used apparently all manner of colored smoke bombs in order to, uh, for shock and awe, but certainly not to enhance a realistic, not to produce a realistic uh, impression of a nuclear detonation. It wasn't all that realistic, really. So then the question is, um, how did they manage the aftermath? How did they convince the Japanese and the rest of the world that what they had witnessed was indeed an atomic bomb? Okay. Um, so the first thing was this black rain. Okay. And this black rain, I think, was actually something that backfired on them. The black rain, um, 
was is described by eyewitnesses as oily. Okay. It is strange anyway that there was rainfall at all. Rainfall at all. So there was also watery rain. Um, this watery rain set in shortly after the detonation and it might have been produced by cloud seeding because um, I have some circumstantial evidence to suggest that it's discussed in the book. I'm not going to go into details here. And I think this watery rain was intended to cover up the, uh, the fallout, which was simply dispersed by airplanes, at least in Hiroshima. And they dispersed it as oily rain in order to make it stick to the surface, right? If they have the fallout also dissolved in water, and then on top of that, they have watery rain to hide the airplanes and so on and to make it all believable, then the watery rain will wash off the fallout. In order to prevent the fallout from being washed off, they used oil to disperse it. Now, the oily drops, as they fell down through the smoke of the burning city, collected soot on their way down. And this is why they were black. And instead of being hidden, they were extremely conspicuous. Okay, so I think this is what this actually backfired on them, and this is why they didn't pull the same stunt in Nagasaki. Okay, then as I already said, the napalm burns were explained as flash burns, and the poison gas, which had been experienced by many people, was simply explained to them as atom bomb gas. They were simply given a Hogwarts story that radioactivity somehow produces poisonous gas because too many witnesses had actually noticed it. You couldn't tell. No, you were just, you are imagining things. There was no poison gas. It was such a, it was just such an overwhelming experience for so many people that they chose to explain it rather than to deny it, at least in Japan. The rest of the world was still to, told a completely different story. But in Japan, particularly in those cities, people were given this Hogwarts story about atom bomb gas. And as I just mentioned, right, the special effects and the atomic shadows and so on, they were probably created only in September. So another question is, how were the Japanese deceived? I think they were not at all. I think they were forced to collude in staging the bombing. They couldn't have been deceived. They were not stupid. They would have noticed it. For example, if we look at all the stuff that was going on, right, all these fireworks, the napalm, and the mustard gas, this could only have been delivered by a sizable fleet of airplanes. The Japanese would have seen those airplanes, the Japanese air defense would have seen it, and they would have raised an alarm. You may have heard that in Hiroshima, there was an alarm in force, which was actually lifted a few minutes before the bombing. This could not have been done by uh, if the Japanese had not been in on this deception. So we can discuss this maybe later on a little bit more. And then why was it done? Um, I don't think, the Japanese, that's one important thing that I really need to get out of the way. The Japanese had been asking for peace negotiations at least since early 1945, probably already 1944. Actually, the first, yes, the first record I have found is from 1944 already. And so what I believe that these were actually uh, terror. This was an act of terror in the same way as 9-11 was an act of terror. It's just state terror, government terrorism. And the purpose was to get people to uh, submit to a world, a world government. Right here we have an early piece of such propaganda. The title already sets the tone, one world or none. So if we don't speedily all ascend to world government, 
we will face nuclear annihilation. So what can be worse than nuclear annihilation? So let's speedily uh, invent and institute the world government. And the reason why this didn't come to pass in the end was the Soviet reluctance to go along with this. Okay? Stalin simply refused to join the scheme. Yeah, good. Now the uh, scam, they still keep it going. And if you want for a laugh, you can visit the website of the bulletin of the uh, atomic scientists. And they adopt every worthy cause. So you can read all about nukes and climate change and COVID and how the world is going to, <laughs> is facing immediate annihilation. And for added laughs, you can now, <laughs> you can now buy a book from them, The Atomic Clock at 75. So this, you can buy a book <laughs> that celebrates this clock that remains forever stuck at 5 to 12 or even 100 seconds for 12 before 12 in its 75th year. Okay, so this is, uh, <laughs> this, this is science. You know? <laughs> okay, so then what finally, um, right, Werner Heisenberg, famous atomic physicist, he said, right, it's spontaneous reaction was, it's got nothing to do with atoms. At the time, Heisenberg and the elite of the um, German nuclear physics, they were all imprisoned in some remote place in England and all their conversations were taped. And I have been wondering what this was about. And they were actually let go shortly after these events. What I suspect is speculation, I cannot prove it. Um, they wanted to find out whether these guys would be able to figure out that this had been a hoax. If these people among themselves would have worked out that this had been a hoax, I don't think they would have been alive for very long after that. I think this is what this imprisonment was about. Otherwise, I have not seen any plausible reason for them to be in prison at the time. So um, now, here's another book, um, which was already published some five years ago by a uh, guy who calls himself Aki Nakatani. I think that's just a pen name, but it's a fair game in this uh, entire situation, I guess. And he has carried out some detailed um, computer simulations and concludes from them that the bombs of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki designs could not have worked. And he also states he is convinced that any other atomic bombs could not work either. Um, I must withhold judgment on that one. It may, be well, may well be true, but he doesn't really provide much detail in order to confirm, to verify this claim, because he says he can't do it because um, of US legislation, which he apparently is subject to. And um, so he also mostly presents the circumstantial evidence. What I will say is there is certainly lots of nuclear fallout on the world. So some sort of atomic tests must have happened. Um, also, I showed you this picture of the uh, burned retina of this one soldier, right? And there were several more such reports. Something must have happened. Whether these nuclear devices are actually suitable as bombs, right? Whether they are compact and efficient enough to be screwed on top on the tips of rockets and then just simply shot across the ocean and so on, that's another question. Whether there are actually whether nuclear bombs can work is a separate question from whether nuclear detonations can work. We know that Chernobyl blew up, right? I think you could fake something underground as well. You can simply uh, create a reactor underground with a strong 
casing, then you withdraw the rods and you just simply wait until it blows up and self-destroys. It's not a bomb, but it is mm. certainly good enough to fake one, right? It's a good fake of nuclear detonation. I could readily imagine that all these bomb tests are fakes of that sort, but there is not enough evidence and I'm not enough of an expert on analyzing the sparse evidence in order to come to a conclusive determination. So I will actually leave that question to others. I will leave the question where exactly nuclear arms technology stands nowadays. I will leave that to others. But from the much richer evidence, much of which is in, indeed in my department as a medical doctor, I'm convinced that no nuclear detonations, no nuclear bombs were used in these two cities. And I'm convinced that both Napalm and mustard gas were key elements of this massacre. There may have been others which I have overlooked, but the evidence for these two is very strong. Just to summarize, the Japanese government would have known about these bombings. Is that what you're suggesting? That's what I'm saying. They would not only have known, they would have actually actively colluded in them, yes. That's very... That Sorry. seems to that, yeah. That seems to remind me of Pearl Harbor, where the American government would have also done the same thing. Yes, well, yeah, that's right. I mean, Pearl Harbor indeed was it was a setup. Also, collusion. Yeah, but I mean, in that case, the, there was nobody from the outside who would have forced the American government to do that, right? I mean. That was in inner American affair, right? The Japanese, yeah. I think, they had to be coerced into colluding, right? I told you that the Japanese had already begun in 1944 to plead for peace. And they were actually asking terms, which are very similar, which were very similar to the ones that were in the end implemented after the war. Okay? After the war, we uh, right. The Japan became a vassal of the United States, but they did remain in independent country. They kept the emperor and so on. And this was essentially all they had been asking all along. So then the question is, if they were asking this, why was the war dragged out for so long? And it is clear from the historical record, which I also discuss in the final chapter in my book, um, that it was the American side who dragged it out. And I think they dragged it out, and it was dragged out because of this coercion. I think when the Japanese were first asked, that, or were told that in order to get a peace treaty, they would have to go along with staging these bombings, they refused. And I think that all this conventional bombing which went on between the beginning of 1945 and the atomic bombing was part of that coercion. And at some point, the Japanese simply saw no other way than going along with these bombings. This is but, how I think is, it most likely happened, yeah. But why would the U.S. have gone through so much effort to create an atomic fear? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it certainly has nothing to do with the atom, with the American national interest. Um, it is also clear that the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States, they were very keen on this Japanese peace offer, right? The Americans were thoroughly informed of what was going on behind the scenes in Japan because they had all along been able to decode the internal Japanese communications. So they were perfectly aware of what was going on. Also, they were 
explicitly approached, right, both through uh, people in Japanese uh, um, diplomats in Sweden and in Switzerland, the Americans were directly approached with peace proposals. Okay, and when the American Joint Chiefs learned of that, they were very keen. Obviously, they wanted to stop the slaughter, and they didn't want to sacrifice any further American soldiers necessarily. So they pleaded with Truman to negotiate. Truman refused. Then what the American Joint Chiefs did, they went to their British counterparts, and the British counterparts were put up to asking Churchill if Churchill would plead their case with Truman, which Churchill did, and Truman still refused. So something um, other than the American national interest was driving it. And um, I think that takes us back to this idea of world government. I don't think that the world government is something that would be in the American national interest. It is driven by a larger, more internationally based power. And I think that is the same kind of people who are now driving this COVID hoax, which also I think is um, in other effort in the same direction, right? I think they are still keen on implementing the world government. Um, I think they have been at it for a long time. They have been at it for a long time. And this is just one failed attempt to get this world government uh, off the ground. Well, the idea of the one world government ha was already in the works for decades before this particular yes, incident. Exactly. And, and I think that the American the government of the United States or the government the United States as such, they have been a zombie country for a long time. They are just the enforcers. They are just the muscle of this real power behind the scenes, which doesn't give a damn about Americans and their national interests and the lives of American soldiers. Okay, so the bombings, nuclear bombings, were not needed to uh, get Japan to surrender because Japan had been straining at the leash to surrender all along. It was not needed accordingly. It was not needed to pursue the American national interest. So there is clearly something else at play here. And as long as you try to interpret this in terms of sovereign governments pursuing their own national interests, it doesn't make any sense. This entire story doesn't make any sense. How is it possible, Michael, that this particular talking point is so heavily suppressed? You can find nothing about it on the internet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've, I came across a number of, of uh, items that were, are surprisingly heavily suppressed. For example, as part of my research, I was obviously looking through PubMed, right? This leading international medical database all, all the time in order to dig up some studies. And when I simply looked for NAPA, just medical literature on NAPA, I found that was in the year 2019, I found 29 papers listed on NAPA. And of these, all of seven, seven, papers were published in the English language. <laughs> it's, 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 it's grotesque. I mean, NAPA has been used for decades and there are just hundreds of thousands, if not millions of victims of it, right? So there should be a much larger literature. It isn't there, it's suppressed. The literature on NAPA is suppressed. And I think one reason to suppress it is because the similarity to these supposed flashbacks. And 
Well, I mean, if indeed people were able to see, to, to realize the truth about this particular deception, I think very many people would then start asking, okay, what else is wrong? What else shouldn't we believe in? I think this is, I mean, this is one of the most important psyops which have been used against the world's population in order to imbue them with fear of national of, of atomic destruction and so on and so forth. If you take that away and say this was all a hoax, it's all a fraud, these atomic bombs, I think it would just simply shake it would shake the belief in the entire um, edifice of historic misrepresentation so much that it would indeed endanger the grip on power of those who have been responsible for this. What's interesting, I mean, though, there are some others. There are some. There are some other deceptions. You know, I'm not mm. going to go into these ones. This one is big mm. enough for the football for one day. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I was. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that for most of this year, all we've been hearing about is Russia and the U.S. dropping nuclear warheads everywhere. It seems like it seems like a propaganda campaign. Oh yes, I think so too. I think it, uh, it is. I think actually that the the West right now is trying to diffuse to some degree the, the fear of atomic bombs. Right. The interesting. The ironic part is, I think that the Russians are now using nuclear fear propaganda to their own advantage. I think, honestly, neither side actually has working nuclear weapons. Firstly, because they have never been used in combat, right? Never, even not in Japan. So they have literally never been used in reality. Another point is that you do not need them, particularly nowadays, right? Because you can use conventional explosives and you can get them to your intended destination with such high precision that you simply do not need this very high explosive force to compensate for the inaccurate targeting anymore. There's no need for atomic bombs. I mean, you see it in Ukraine now. They can cripple the country just simply by, by knocking out the power grid. It's much more effective than what the Americans did with their stupid napalm bombing everywhere. I mean, it's... Right? I mean, the Russians are just much, they are just simply too clever for, for clumsy tricks such as this one. I don't think they have any nuclear weapons, at least if they, if they have them. I don't think there will be any need for them to use them because the conventional weaponry is so effective and so superior to anything the West can feel right now. So what was the Cold War then all about? Was it just massive amounts of propaganda again? Well... I mean, you will notice that in the Cold War, there were not just nuclear arms, but there was also there were very, very large conventional forces. Right? I mean, the Russians, I don't remember the exact numbers now, but I mean, they had tens of thousands of battle tanks that dwarfed anything that NATO had. I mean, even I was, was in the West German Army for my mandatory military duty in the late 1980s. At, the point, at that point, West Germany had 2,000 of the most modern Leopard 2 battle tanks, and they had some few thousand more updated Leopard 1 battle tanks. And it was still tiny. These numbers were still tiny against that, what Russia would have been able to put in the field. So the Cold War 
was certainly real in that sense that there was a real and serious military buildup on both sides. What the role of the nuclear weapons played in that context, I cannot say with certainty. Michael, if you were to summarize this conversation, what would you say? What would I say? Well, um, I would say that the evidence is clear that firstly, there are no there were no nuclear bombs detonated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's physical and medical evidence to prove it. And if you are not convinced by the evidence which I have shown you in this limited time, you are more than welcome to check out my book, which is free electronically and uh, can be bought for a moderate price also in print of Lulu.com, but you can find it on archive.org. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way, Michael, that uh, I can follow your work? When I say I, I mean um, other people. Well, I do have a little bit of a, of a website, but I don't post there very often because I'm too busy with other stuff. And I'm a little bit too old-fashioned to entertain, to maintain any day-to-day any -day social media presence. But my website is uh, can be found at mparma.heresy.is. You want to put that link up somewhere i can also send you send a link to you <laughs> i mean i i wouldn't have uh, entertained the whole idea just a few short years ago either actually i i sort of as the saying goes woke up in 2016 when i stumbled upon a video of world trade center tower seven collapsing onto its own footprint that kind of really flipped the switch in my brain you know but I can understand that people have a hard time adjusting to what I just told you. For example, I have um, <laughs> I have a brother and I have a son who are both physics PhDs. Neither of them is, has looked at this book. I actually tried to get them to proofread the physical parts of it. Neither of them would do it. They just simply believe it's all conspiracy theory. That's it. They will not entertain the idea that it might be correct. I have had the book uh, proofread by other physicists, also by biologists, by uh, medical doctors and so on. So it has been quite thoroughly vetted, but not by my own family members. <laughs> but that's very interesting what, you, what you're saying, because in the last three years, the same scenario has played out around the world where people just somehow think that this COVID story yeah. is real and that these vaccines are amazing. Yes, yes. I mean, it is It is shocking to see how strong the grip really is. Um, mm. This stranglehold on, on very many people's consciousness. It is astonishing to see that how, how readily they can be misled by simple, plain repetition and fear propaganda because that's really all it is. I mean, there's never any rhyme or reason. Michael Palmer. Thank you for joining yes. me in the trenches. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Jeremy. Thank you very much for the invitation. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.